The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Navy ship USS Decatur spent the Civil War guarding San Francisco against enemies that never showed up. It was an obsolete sailing ship, a relic of the old Navy. But its story is that of the Navy before the Civil War, indeed the entire country before the war. We'll find out how this particular Navy ship captured much of the dynamic of 1850s antebellum America when we talk today with Professor Lorraine McGonaghy, author of Warship Under Sail, the USS Decatur in the Pacific West, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Roundtable. I'm Roundtable. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, thinking about Civil War Roundtables, where I'll be speaking in the month ahead. But actually today, coming to you from, as usual, the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where it is a lovely spring day on the last day of April 2010. April is certainly the nicest month here in Eastern Carolina. The weather is uh, not yet intolerably hot and humid, but the rains of the early spring are over. The flowers are out. It is really quite spectacular, even here on a mid-sized regional State University campus. It's a nice place to be. Uh, But as nice as it is, I am not speaking on behalf of East Carolina University, nor does it speak for me, and I know our guest will speak for herself and not her institution, and uh, World Talk Radio is completely off the hook for anything we say. So having gotten rid of the legal obligations, we move on. First, uh, thanking listeners, as always, for the suggestions that you send in. Uh, Today's guest uh, came to my attention through one such uh, suggestion, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed reading uh, the book this week and hope that you will uh, take advantage of the opportunity to do the same thing and and, uh, listen to our conversation and get yourself a copy of the book. So, 
feel free to continue sending in uh, to my ECU at ed ecu.edu email address. Uh, any suggestions, ideas you have for people to be on the show. And if you wish to contribute to the book fund of Civil War Talk Radio for those uh, tight-fisted publishers who cannot bear to part with review copies once in a while, we have to go out and dig up the books ourselves. Uh, and for that, funding is always appreciated. You can send contributions to CivilWarTR at AOL dot com uh, using the miracle of PayPal. Uh, if you send comments or questions to that address, I only look at it very pure, very sporadically. And, and if there's no money attached, of course, I just disregard them entirely. Well, I don't do that, but it takes me a long time to reply. Um, but if you go to the East Carolina University website, you can find my faculty email address there quite easily. And uh, I do respond to those usually a little more quickly. Uh, my apologies to listeners who are right now thinking I wrote to him a month ago and haven't heard back. Uh, it's the, the crazy time of year here in academia. It's uh, Final exams are underway. There was no live show last week due to that. There will be no live show next week due to commencement. I'll be explaining to parents of history graduates why they have not wasted four years of tuition dollars uh, having their children learn about the oh, the, the Wilmot Proviso or the uh, rise of the middle class when they could have been learning marketing and supply chain uh, uh, management, which is a department here on campus, which won a lot of teaching awards at last week's awards day. I'm not convinced that people who teach supply chain management are better teachers than those of us in the history department, but I do think the marketers are better self-promoters and have nominated themselves for more teaching awards than, uh, than my department has done. We'll, we'll fix that next year. Speaking of self-promotion, uh, if you're in one of these areas uh, over the next uh, couple weeks, please drop in and uh, say hello to me. If you're at the, in the lower Michigan area, the Ann Arbor Civil War Roundtable is having their uh, big 50th anniversary meeting is that right, or is it just a regular meeting? Um, they're having uh, uh, their meeting on. Let's get the right day. On May 10th, Monday, May 10th, and uh, I will be speaking there. And, and as always, would look forward to uh, meeting. It's the 15th anniversary. That's what it is. The Ann Arbor Civil War Roundtable's 15th anniversary uh, will be Monday, May 10th. Uh, look them up online and uh, come out and join if you're in that area. The Chesapeake Civil War Roundtable uh, outside of Baltimore in the Annapolis area is uh, having me chat with them on, what would that be, May 12th, Thursday, uh, thir well, let's get the right date for that too, Thursday the 13th. Um, and that will be uh, interesting and fun as always. Looking forward to speaking with that group. Uh, so, uh, Ann Arbor, May 10th, uh, the Chesapeake Civil War Roundtable and Anne Arundel Community College and uh, just outside of Baltimore on May 13th. And if you're listening to the radio, uh, the State of Things program on uh, North Carolina Public Radio uh, noon on May 11th. I'll be talking with them, not about Civil War topics, but about public history topics, which is a good 
moment to segue to uh, our guest today. Uh, she is Dr. Lorraine uh, McGonaghy. Uh, she is the historian at uh, the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Dr. McGonaghy, are you there? Hello? Yes, I am. Yes. Ah, there you are. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, uh, I hope you don't mind if I call you Lorraine. Please call me Jerry. We'll I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Move things along. Looking at your dust jacket of your very attractive book, uh, the uh, uh, your title is Public Historian. And on this show, uh, I've often talked with guests about the the odd role that professional historians play in our nation's uh, dialogue on history that uh, the the academic historians so isolated themselves over the last decades. We had to create public history uh, to 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 have history for people again, and, and uh, it's a subject I teach here at, at ECU, and uh, I'm very interested in it. When I was uh, before I came to the university, I was at a museum for nine years as the the museum's historian, and I thought I had just about the best job in in the country for a practicing historian. Is your job the best job for a practicing historian? Oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's sort of a, um, an ultimate career experience. Because I, I did teach uh, at a universities before coming to the Museum of History and Industry, and I wrote history for newspapers and had a little public history company. But doing history for people in the galleries and engaging people in history in programs is, is just a great experience for, for a historian. It's a very, very different kind of writing that you do in a gallery than, than you, you know, than historians have become accustomed to speak to each other in. The jargon of academic history writing has become, I think, very off-putting to ordinary people, if I may call people like you and me ordinary. Uh, it's almost incomprehensible. So writing for the gallery really, really encourages a historian to focus her thoughts um, and to also to open those thoughts up. So yes, it's it's a great place for me to be. It, it, it's fun, and you reach so many people. I don't know how many. What, what is your annual visitation at the museum? About fifty thousand. That, that's about the size of the museum I, I worked in for for most of a decade, and uh, I'm sure I haven't taught 50,000 students since I, in the last seven years, but, but you, you reach people every day uh, that you would never be able to reach in the classroom. That's right, and I think it makes doing history a community project, which, you know, if, if, if identity has anything to do with history and if civic literacy has anything to do with identity, then the role of a historian as a public intellectual in our society is a vital one. And you know, I have never felt out of place at the museum. I have felt thoroughly in place there as a, as a historian. Now, but let me ask this then. If you go to the OAH meeting or the AHA or any other professional uh, mainstream academic historical meeting, do you feel out of place there? No, I'm Robert May. I'm sure you've interviewed on your show or talked about. I mean, the real scholar of Manifest Destiny's Underworld and the filibuster movement prior to the Civil War. He was my chair at a session at OAH last year. Oh. And, I mean, there's, there's enough, I think, a solid historiography to what I was trying to do in this book that we have a lot to talk about. He had a lot to help me with. I learned a lot from my colleagues. I'm not cutting myself off from 
Um, I mean, there are plenty of public historians who attend AHA and OAH, but the National Council on Public History is really my home, um, and that is a conference I would never miss. But the the straight academic history conferences, I, I never come away having learned nothing new. I mean, they're very stimulating. What do they think of me as a public historian in a museum? Well, I'm not, I guess, a terribly anxious or in- introspective person. So, um, I-, I guess we get along just fine. And if they think little of me, I, I guess I'll find out when they review this book. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, the only academic review so far has been in the Journal of Military History, and that was Spencer Tucker, and it was a very, uh, very nice review. So we'll see what happens. Well, I, I, it is. Uh, I, I enjoyed the book, and we'll, we'll talk about it in detail. The, uh, but that, that really is one of the issues on, on Civil War talk radio. Uh, listeners know that maybe half the authors who, who show up here are not academics. Uh, that are people who are just interested in the past. Uh, you know, lawyers and journalists and doctors, and they they write a Civil War book in their spare time because of their passion for the subject. And in the Civil War period, you really have this, this rare intersection of, of real public interest and commitment, um, and, and sometimes an absence of the same on the part of the, the uh, professoriate, the uh, people not writing enough Civil War books, or at least of the kind the public wants. So we get this odd, odd mix. Um, well, I think here I'm, in, in Washington State, as the sesquicentennial of the Civil War looms, and we look to that... And Washington Territory is not a place of battlefields, but it is a Civil War place, because the Civil War is as much about issues as it is about battles. And people brought the issues with them, with their rifle and their Bible and their fiddle, when they went to Washington Territory to settle. So here, you know, we'll be exploring the issues of slavery and race, of treason, of secession of the Pacific Republic, of the Knights of the Golden Circle, of the suppression of civil liberties like habeas corpus and freedom of the press, just like you will be Uh. um, back in the Southeast. This is a national war, and the opportunity for all of us in Washington State to learn about the Civil War together, uh, it's going to be a great experience during the sesquicentennial. I'm really eager for it. Well, that that will be interesting because uh, certainly most people studying the war don't think of it as extending that far. We think of the West, meaning the Western theater, um, you know, from the Appalachians to the Mississippi, and then you've got the Trans-Mississippi, and then just the Great American Desert, and and of course there were Americans, uh, both you know, the original Americans plus the the Euro Americans all across the rest of the continent, but they don't feature largely in the traditional Civil War story. Well, that's if you privilege military history. I mean, if, I think if you look instead at issues, and, and it is issues that drove people to, to fight in battles or here in Washington Territory to burn flags or join the Knights of the Golden Circle or send money to the Confederacy or, in fact, to leave. I mean, our third governor, Richard Dickerson Golson, I'm working on him now, and he he was from Kentucky. He had slaves in Kentucky and slaves in Texas. He had a big ranch in Texas and a big farm in Kentucky. And he was our third governor, a Buchanan appointee, very much a young America Democrat, pro-Southern, um, very much in this sort of doe-faced kind of mold. 
came to Washington Territory, was very bellicose with the British during the Pig War here, um, and then went back to tend to his plantation in Kentucky and ultimately to work for the secession of Kentucky. He resigned the governorship of Washington Territory in a letter that said, I will not serve one day under a so-called Republican president, referring to Lincoln. And in Kentucky, Golson was one of the most outspoken pro-secession voices and, and tried to take out the Jackson Purchase at the Mayfield Convention. And when that failed, took his slaves and his family and this military, this cavalry unit he had raised and went to Tennessee, which had seceded. That's our governor. So there's a lot of pathways of the Civil War back and forth to the West that are fascinating to me. The um, you, you mentioned a couple of phrases in there that we'll we'll talk about uh, young America among them, uh, but one was the uh, pig war, and that one uh, needs to be explained. For, to well, those of it's, us, it's uh, a, in the sort of a, a jocose title, I suppose. Um, the pig war took place on San Juan Island in Washington Territory, in the San Juan Islands. There is one island called San Juan Island. And both the Hudson's Bay Company uh, had a presence there, as well as the United States Army and soon the United States Navy. It was an island in dispute because the boundary between the Crown Colony of Victoria and the Crown Colony of Vancouver Island and Washington Territory was not yet fixed. And was it going to be the Harrow Strait or was it going to be Rosario Channel? And this fellow, this American settler there, whom the British regarded as a squatter and who regarded the Hudson's Bay Company as foreign interlopers, his, his potato patch was dug up by a Hudson's Bay Company pig, a hog, and, I mean, just literally dug up and, and made a great mess of. So it's out of that tiny incident that there was a confrontation during Golson's governorship between the United States Army and Navy and the British forces, um, and it, it, you know, teetered on the edge of, of outright military conflict. Um, the powers that be back in Washington, D.C., Washington City, as it was called then, um, like Lewis Cass, sent these frantic um, notes to Golson, essentially saying, will you calm down, God, you know? <laughs> Let's not go to war over this. You know, let's adjudicate this. We've got enough problems without going to war with Great Britain over a pig. Um, so the, the pig war is more complex than that. Michael Vori, V-O-U-R-I, is, is the fine National Park Service historian whose book on the pig war, I think, is a great read. Well, well that, that uh, is tempting. There's something I have not... I think ever discussed in Civil War talk radio in, in six years, uh, so I learn something every day too. Well, uh, it's antebellum. You know, I'm I'm not sure how interested your listeners will be in this story that the arc of my story barely makes it into the Civil War. Well, let's talk about that. Um, the, the USS Decatur is uh, is a Navy ship, uh, and in your your book you describe its. Uh, main most significant voyage in the 1850s and it, at the end we get to the civil war and and we'll we'll touch on that certainly but you present it as a, a microcosm of of the issues that lead to the civil war in in many ways um but 
besides that, it's also a good thief story. And I thought we might just start with, with that. Uh, the, the first uh, episode, as you describe it, is how the, uh, how the Decatur gets from the East Coast to the West Coast, going through the Straits of, of Magellan. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, uh, that, that adventure? Sure, and it, it was an adventure. If you think about why enlisted men joined the Decatur and why officers joined the Decatur, they joined for different reasons in the old Navy. And the officers pursued their fantasies and their passions and their interest in seeing action as they went into the Pacific. And going through the Strait of Magellan, rather than going around the Horn, would have earned the captain of the Decatur, Isaac Sears Sterrett, Sterrett Shipbuilding in Baltimore, would have earned him the the, uh, the glory um, of be of taking the first ship of the Decatur's class, a sloop of war, through the Strait of Magellan the hard way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. You're tacking against prevailing winds the whole way. The weather is insane. Um, the the men who are trying to furl the sails, it's like trying to furl sheet metal when the sails are soaked and then they freeze and the wind is frantic um, in this long tube, um, sort of gesturing with my hand, it's this long tube <laughs> down which the wind just barreled. So the ship was stuck in the Strait of Magellan, which is only a couple of hundred miles long, for 83 days. You know, this is a good place. Let's, let's leave the ship there just momentarily. We're going to take a short break, have an announcement or two. We'll be right back with Lorraine McGonaghy. And I'm Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. In the old Navy, men could grow old and gray while still holding the rank of lieutenant. But in the 1850s, we see the first glimmerings of the Navy that would fight the Civil War. We'll find out what shook up the old Navy and brought new officers to the fore when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Lorraine McGonaghy. She's the author of Warship Under Sail, the USS Decatur in the Pacific West, uh, the story of a U.S. Navy ship in the years before the war, uh, ending in San Francisco during the war. Uh, and in our first segment, we talked a little bit about the uh, uh, the war in the West 
the importance of the Civil War in the Far West, that the issues of the war were just as significant to the people there and just as disruptive of their, of their lives as they were elsewhere in the, the country, and uh, how one might take a different understanding of things, seeing it uh, uh, from a Western perspective. But we then began talking about the uh, the ship itself and some of its uh, adventures, in particular the uh, difficult passage through the Straits of Magellan in 1854 as the ship set off to uh, to join the U.S. Pacific Squadron. Uh, and if you listeners, if you like uh, a good sea story, if you like uh, two years before the mast, if you like Herman Melville, uh, uh, this chapter is is for you. This is, is an astonishing story of how difficult it was to make this passage of a few hundred miles. And uh, Lorraine, you were describing the difficulty of this, the weather, the the conditions. It, to go the short distance took them, uh, I think you said, 83 days. Yes. Yes, 83 days. And the, um, the, the captain had his son along with him as his clerk. The boy was 16. And many of the officers who were on board as well really regarded this as a junket, is, is probably to too silly of a noun, but we have wonderful drawings by the assistant surgeon on board the ship as he he saw himself as an amateur anthropologist, an amateur biologist, an amateur botanist, and went on shore to collect stones and bones and and pelts and sketched the the people, the animals, the plants that he saw. Um, This really opens up um, our understanding of the Strait of Magellan and the way naval officers engaged with it in this period. There's a marvelous drawing of a Fuegian native brought on board the sloop of war and called John Decatur, who is really humiliated um, in this strange encounter across huge chasm of misunderstanding where he's given um, salt beef to eat, and he wolfs it down. He's given hardtack to eat, and he wolfs it down, but he will not touch the liquor. And the reminiscence about this period, you know, all make fun of the fact, you know, this is the only Native person in the history of the planet who has ever turned down liquor. This is the perspective of the officers on board the ship. But then they dress him up in motley, and it's it's exactly what um, Darwin had done on the Beagle. And it's it's interesting to know what my officers were reading. They were carrying Cuvier and Humboldt, and Darwin hadn't published The Descent of Species yet, or The Origin of Species, excuse me, but he had published the journals. And I can very much see Surgeon Taylor uh, using the language, and, and now in this incident, um, dressing John Decatur in, in all of these cast-offs of the officers and crew and then showing himself in a, in a mirror. And it's, it's just a classic moment of contact and conquest, and we capture it in a drawing in the strait. But the strait, by and large, was just a miserable experience. The rations were cut. The captain, it became an obsession for Sterrett to make it through under sail. And this is, in a way, you know, people talk about the Cumberland being the last gasp of the wooden navy in the Civil War. But in a way, the Decatur's failure to make it through the Strait of Magellan is also uh, an expression of the failure of a warship under sail to be efficient in, in the antebellum navy. Uh, the ship had to be towed out by a steamer, and that was an ignoble end, to, to say the least. The USS Massachusetts comes along and, and, and pulls it through finally. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so the. Um, those those images you mentioned the uh, the drawings are reproduced in the book and uh, this is really uh, I said this at the beginning a really attractive book the cover uh, the the painting on the the dust jacket is, is spectacular uh, the illustrations that you have from the people who were on uh, the ship the various sketches uh, are add to it enormously and the maps are among the best. Uh, that, that I've seen in some time. It's a common complaint with Civil War books that the maps are usually inadequate, and here, uh, here they're not. They really uh, do the job. So it's, it's a, a book uh, listeners will want to get uh, just to look at. But the, the, the Decatur makes it through. Um, you said that captain, uh, the captain of the ship, that, that Sterrett wanted to do this uh, said as a... A way of, of demonstrating his own uh, ability as uh, it was unnecessary. He could have gone around Cape Horn, but he was going to prove something. Uh, you talk quite a bit in the book about the efficiency board and, and the changes in the Navy at this time. Why would an officer be so concerned about uh, how well he was doing? Well, the old na- there's a crisis in discipline in the old Navy that my ship sails through. Slogging had been ended in 1850, so for enlisted men and, and Marines, there is no more flogging as a discipline. And the substitutes uh, of confining a man or docking his pay or docking his tobacco were not considered to be as effective by most officers. But the officers themselves were the subject of discipline as well. There was no way to retire from this Navy and and promotion was not on the basis of merit. Um, so you have what you referred to earlier, Jerry, of you know graying past midshipmen and lieutenants. Men on board the Decatur were in their 30s, and they were still past midshipmen. There was nowhere for them to move up to because there was no no way for senior senile. Revolutionize your thinking. It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Let's take a look at two words, sound blessings. Sound is a tone, reverberation, or resonance. It can also be referred to as healthy, well-founded, valid, or reasonable. Blessings are gifts or benefits, something that brings health, appreciation, or well-being. Every week, tune in to Sound Blessings, the radio program, with host Dr. Karen Norum. 
It's a journey, entertainment, and something to think about. Let Karen and her guests raise your vibrations every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Most people lack any joy at work, yet most Americans spend over 60% of their waking lives working, much of it lifeless and burdensome. There is a way to find joy at work. Join host organizational effectiveness consultant Jeff Pelletier each week for God's Work in Progress. The purpose of this program is to help integrate the excellence of faith and work, to bring life, light, love, excellence, and the power of God into the workplace where it has always belonged. Tune in Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Is your sexual relationship satisfying? Do you have a nagging question about sex and you can't find the answer? Tune into Sex in Our Cities with hosts Donna Kane Francis and Robin Potter Kimball. Two advanced practice registered nurses are here to answer all of your questions about sex and relationships. Each issue will be presented in an objective, unbiased perspective designed to educate and empower you to make healthy decisions and bring about change in your life. Sex in Our Cities is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Love old cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motor started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Lorraine McGonaghy of the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, Washington, uh, and the author of Warship Under Sail, the USS Decatur in the Pacific West. We had a uh, line that drop out, a sort of technological thing that could happen in the 19th or 20th or 21st century. Uh, but a moment ago, we were talking about the, uh, the revolution, really, that swept the U.S. Navy in the 1850s when uh, the buildup of, of superannuated lieutenants and other officers with no hope of promotion under the old seniority system suddenly got swept away. And uh, Lorraine, how again did that happen? Yes, I'm so sorry. I'm not sure where I was, so forgive me if I repeat myself. The, the, the Naval Retiring Board of Samuel Francis DuPont was instituted to review the conduct and suitability for command of about 250 officers in the Navy. The number of officers was set by Congress, and if, if there was no way for these superannuated officers you refer to to retire, um, there, was, there was no way that men could move up. Jerry, are so, you there? Yeah, I, I am here. Okay. I'm so afraid I'm going to lose. <laughs> um, no, so we're good. Just make noises from time to time. Will do. So um, Isaac Sears Sterrett was one of the commanders who was reviewed by the plucking board, as it was called popularly, because upon review, um, an officer would simply be plucked out. He would disappear and be removed from duty, furloughed, or actually dropped from the rolls. 
and Sterrett was reviewed, and the, the record of this is in a, in a little diary that was kept by Samuel Francis DuPont, and it's just a, a wonderful trove of naval gossip of the 1850s. It is just so irresponsible, and uh, there's no evidence, there's no representation, so Sterrett could be a, accused of drinking too much, of, of being in debt, and of taking his ship through the Strait of Magellan when he ought to have um, been more responsible and come as quickly as possible into the Pacific. So uh, you mentioned DuPont, and who, of course, becomes famous during the Civil War, and this is true of uh, many others who either serve on this board or are reviewed by this board and will, will turn out to be significant figures. Let me take a, a jump ahead out of chronological order because I don't want to miss this. The uh, the service, the, the last significant service that the uh, Decatur performs before it ends its uh, working lifetime in San Francisco is around Nicaragua and, and later Panama during the era of the filibusters. And its experience there highlights the rather bizarre relationship of the U.S. government uh, and the, these, these Quasi, well, I guess, fully military uh, personal expeditions. What what did the Decatur have to do with the filibusters? Well, not as much as the St. Mary's. The the Decatur was the smallest ship in the in the Pacific Squadron. It was fast and lethal, um, but it was small, um, uh, 117 feet long. The St. Mary's um, was the Navy ship that received the surrender of William Walker, but the Decatur became a hospital ship for the, some of the horribly injured men uh, who survived um, Walker's piratical adventure in Central America. And it's, it's um, interesting to probe this young America phenomenon that swept the United States in the 1840s and 1850s, that somehow, and, and Yonatan Ayal calls this the fond, foolish hope, that if you directed your knives outward, you would not direct them inward and that a sort of infinite expansion, uh, a manifest destiny gone, gone wild to, to conquer, you know, so, so the Pacific coast becomes not a barrier to expansion, but it sort of encourages the next step of, of, a, of an empire that spreads west, north, and south along the continuous beaches of the Pacific west. So in this sense, William Walker's filibuster is an act of westward manifest destiny that becomes a southern initiative when Walker instituted slavery in Nicaragua. But some of my officers were clearly young America Democrats who supported Walker. You can look at their behavior. Someone like David McCorkle, who was a lieutenant on the St. Mary's when, when Walker surrendered and had the duty of... of um, marching his, his, the guys who could walk in Walker's army a couple of hundred miles to, in, to get to Panama, to, to get back to New York. He resigned his commission at the beginning of the Civil War, and then at the end of the war, he, he joined the Peruvian Navy. I mean, I, I think that engagement with the filibusters either, either emphasized and reinforced ideas that naval officers had, or it gave them ideas that they had not had. Well, I think one of the interesting things your book points out is that these naval officers who are you know, theoretically apolitical, the military is, is, is supposed to be loyal to the administration, to the, to the Constitution, is administered by the current administration. Uh, but, but officers did have political leanings, and a lot of them supported this, this Young America movement, which 
is it's it's not clearly I guess it's more certainly more aligned with the Democratic Party than the the Whigs or later the Republicans. Uh, But it's a cultural as well as a political movement. Uh, Would you not say that? I would. That term old fogey, you know, that we use so colloquially today was used at that time as a kind of um, cultural and political identifier. So someone like William Mervyn, who was the commodore of the Pacific Squadron, was a very lonely Whig um, in in a sea of, well, not every officer was a young American Democrat, and it isn't always easy to tell. But one of the surgeons on board the Decatur said that Walker's filibuster had the support of the U.S. Navy insofar as it was possible without antagonizing um, international uh, reaction, war, in, in effect. So um, you can read uh, the correspondence of some of these officers, and it's, it's, it's kind of a racial perspective in a way that men who had lived through in their lifetime the Louisiana Purchase, the war with Mexico, the resolution of the dispute with Great Britain, the acquisition of the whole 1,300 miles of the West Coast, they were used to acquiring territory and subduing the inhabitants of that territory under the force of arms and then bringing it into the United States. Um, Someone like Walker was considered to be out ahead of his country, waiting for his country to catch up with him. And what he was doing, of course, was leading the, these private expeditions of armed men to, to places like Nicaragua to try to conquer them and then ultimately bring them into the Union. Uh, as... Yeah, and, and I think it's, I didn't write about this as much as I ought to have, but I think it's very comparable to the Knights of the Golden Circle and their interest in Cuba and a slave empire uh, on, on your side of things over in the South Atlantic. So the... the uh... This cultural conflict between uh, young America and the the old fogies, as as the young Americans called their opponents, uh, Abraham Lincoln makes some humor out of the old fogey uh, title, which would be applied to him as a Whig. Uh, But the the conflict is, you know, it's political, and we can understand that and read in the textbooks of Stephen Douglas wanting to expand for this reason or that reason, but... uh, There there really is this this cultural and this... uh, uh, this element you mentioned several times of masculinity, uh, that the, the young Americans are virile. This is what, what men do, is, is go out and take land. Uh, and it's part of a male identity to, to be a young American. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and they're civil engineers as, as much as they're uh, military men. The, so much is new. The, there's a brand-new railroad across the isthmus at Panama. It's an American railroad. It opened in 1855. The, the, the reason Nicaragua was important was because that's where Cornelius Vanderbilt hoped that there would be a transit, I mean, a, you know, a, a back-and-forth place from the Atlantic to the Pacific where gold seekers going west and gold dust going east could have swift, safe um, transit across. And the, the Nicaragua transit was 700 miles further north than the Panama transit. But... Um, they were, in, in the time of my ship, there were civil engineers doing surveys of a canal through Nicaragua. So young America is not just about military might and the sort of camaraderie under arms that, that the new masculinity sort of emphasizes, but also about creating a, a continent that would be American from Tierra del Fuego to Alaska and out to the Marquesas Islands. I mean, in this period, the Sandwich Islands are still independent. Uh, Hawaii has not 
you know, yet become Hawaii. So this expansionism, this sense of if we look away from the domestic problems at home, this irrecon- irreconcilable conflict, you know, it, somehow we may be able to disguise or delay that that conflict. And in in the wardroom of the Decatur, like in every ship, you could not talk politics or religion or women because there was no way that Thomas Stoll Phelps from Maine was going to agree with John Ward from Georgia about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so they had to, uh, as you say, they had to disguise it and, and distract themselves with these other missions, which it strikes me that even after the war has begun, when, when William Seward is, is proposing that the United States get involved in a war with Britain and France as a way of reuniting North and South, mm-hmm. this idea dies hard that if we just had a, as you said, turn our knives outward, we could, we could stop fighting one another. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't work ultimately. Um, no, I mean, in the West, you can certainly see how what a failure this notion was that, you know, the Civil War is about the West, and, and it's about these new territories. They, they become the prize of the war in many ways, but they also are sort of the cause of it. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the fact that Nicaragua began as a manifest destiny project to bring Nicaragua under the flag as a republic and turned into a sort of bolt hole for slavery had, had Walker been successful is, is kind of a, not a metaphor, but sort of a case study um, for that idea deploying itself. Now, when the war eventually begins, the... Uh the men that you studied here who were on the crew of the Decatur, um, well, actually, let me backtrack a bit. The crew of the Decatur doesn't necessarily make one want to go back and relive the past. Sometimes you read a romanticized version of life on a sailing ship and think, oh, that wouldn't be so bad. Uh, and I guess when the ship is underway and the canvas is flying, it doesn't sound quite so bad. But whenever they anchor, as they do off of Panama for a year, or when they spend time in San Francisco or, or Seattle or anywhere for any length of time, uh, things go pretty bad for the crew in a hurry in terms of uh, military effectiveness or readiness. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about uh, what these sailors do? Well, I, I mentioned earlier, and I'm not sure if it was a dropout or if it was in, that the officers and the men joined the Decatur in Boston for maybe very different reasons. And mm-hmm. many of the men were following the the sort of notion of the day to go west, young man, and you know to to get to the golden opportunities of romance, of land, of wealth in the far west. Whether that's you know women dancing the hula, or you know some wild woman in the Nicaraguan jungle, or whether it's land in Washington Territory, a man could claim 320 acres. Uh, William Walker gave his fighting men 250 acres, and then of course there's the gold of California, and soon there's the Comstock load. So in many cases, men signed on almost like you'd ride a bus. I mean, they worked their way to the Pacific, and they intended to desert, in my opinion. And 10% of them deserted at every port you've mentioned, Jerry. And, you know, they deserted in Seattle with the territory in, a, in an Indian war. And nevertheless, the, the opportunities of Washington territory seemed, seemed worth it to them. The life on board the ship was really tough. Um, it's monotonous. Um, it's hard work. It's dangerous work. Some of the, since we have at the National Archives such fantastic records, you can really see the shipboard injuries of hernias and broken arms and death 
um, this was a hard life. And, you know, there's no cures for the typical sailor ills. Uh, venereal disease was, it was a death sentence. And 25 to 27% of the crew was reporting for treatment at any given time. And this treatment was completely ineffective. But, yeah, um, men deserted with great frequency, and they deserted for crusades sometimes. So a lot of men changed their names. There's pursers' names, and then there's just wanting to disappear in the West, because it's illegal to desert. I mean, no one's encouraging you to do that. So there's, you get off the ship, you run away, and you say, my name's not John Smith anymore, it's Frank Mathias. And that's what you're going to call me now. That's what I call myself. And make up an alias, make up an alibi, and then maybe join William Walker's filibuster. But I was able to trace a couple of men whose names were unusual and who kept those Mm -hmm. names. John Kerry Drinkhouse, for instance, who fought Mexicans in the Mexican War, fought Indians in Seattle, and then fought Nicaraguans. I think it's a real continuum for him um, going from you know, the U.S. Army to the U.S. Navy to William Walker's filibuster. Now, an interesting point you make, uh, and it ties in with desertion, is that when these sailors join, they don't actually join the Navy, they, they join the Decatur. They, they, you sign up for a particular ship. Uh, yeah. And in that sense, they're, uh, they really are the identity of, of the ship. And, and it, it's quite different from today, where you would enlist in the institution of the Navy and be assigned to a ship. Uh, these men make the choice. They know what the, the ship is headed west, and they, they, they're making, as you say, they're working their way west. They know where they're going. Yeah, and, and some of them are career. I mean, they enlist again and again and again. And, you know, they may be in the Royal Navy and then on a whaling ship and then on a U.S. ship. It's not necessarily the case that, you know, they'll always sail in a U.S. Navy ship. But in the Civil War, they really do endure as kind of the core, the continuing core that set the the tone uh, of the U.S. Navy because the Navy grew so hugely during the war that everything I wrote about just disappears. It becomes old-fashioned overnight. But the enduring people like Samuel Silk, um, you know, they're still there and setting the tone. What happened to black sailors on my ship during the Civil War might be interesting. Um, I think it was a surprise to me, although it does make some sense, that black men who were, well, they may have been African from the Cape Verde Islands, or they may have been African-American, but they may have achieved petty officer status, you know, a um, very skilled status among enlisted men. But by the end of the Civil War, a guy like Robert Shorter, who I could follow, a, a black petty officer on the Brandywine at the beginning of the war, by the end of the war, he was a coal stoker on the Faki, which was a ship that was solely crewed by black sailors. So maybe it's the influence of the contrabands. I, I don't know. Um, I, I haven't studied this, but I certainly could see it in the biographies that I followed, that that sailors of color on the Decatur did not continue what was sort of an antebellum trajectory that honored their skill in warships under sail. As the Navy became a steam Navy, um, and, and maybe there's something to do with race as well, they lost, they lost ground. The, the, the skill they had that would be in demand on a sailing ship uh, is no longer in demand, and, and now a commander can afford to indulge racism, and uh, you can't 
not use a skilled sailor when it's life and death, but if if you just need people to shovel coal, anyone can do that. Yeah. Uh, now, the uh, what, what about other sailors on the Decatur? When the war comes, you said they couldn't talk politics in the wardroom among the officers. Uh, to the extent you could trace them, uh, does the, the crew divide north and south when the war begins? Well, as, as you know, Jerry, from your own work, the officers are a snap. You can just go and read their letters of resignation and, and then follow them in the Confederate Marines or the Confederate Navy or, or wherever. I think I mentioned that many of the men who had been disciplined by the plucking board or who were unhappy, people whose unhappiness I can see, um, tended to resign. It's really kind of striking. The enlisted men, it's tougher. And I was so conscious in working on this book that as great as the National Archives sources are, tracing men of slippery identity who don't necessarily want to be followed, didn't want to be followed, is hard. And finding, uh, finding crewmen from the Decatur, I, I was successful in some states and not in others. Um, and I, I, I know that, you know, if I were doing the book 10 years from now, it would have been easy to do that. But at the time I was, at the time I am working on it, it's a little hard to actually know what enlisted men made what decisions. But some, some did stay with the Union, as far as you could tell, and some did go south. Oh, yes. Oh, for sure. It's just that of the 300 enlisted men, I, you know, I think I was able to trace the choices of like 36, which is not exactly a good percentage. But, the but, but still significant. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's certainly and it's interesting because in the, the Army, the enlisted men, very few enlisted men went with the Confederacy, whereas the officer corps divided. Uh, the enlisted soldiers did not. But but among the the Navy sailors, there, there, you found you did find some who who went with the South. Well, you know the the coxswain who who came who's a petty officer. The coxswain who sailed with Isaac Sterrett was from Baltimore, and I didn't put it in the book because I couldn't I couldn't really footnote it. I I couldn't mm-hmm. prove it, but I am almost sure that that coxswain is the same name as as a man who went into the Confederate States Navy. Um, I, I see no reason to expect that enlisted men would not have convictions. It seems to me that they are likely to have them just like anyone else would, and that there's, there's kind of an assumption. I mean, if you go to the footnotes in, in many um, military history arguments that, you know, men by and large stayed loyal to the North and really try to probe that, it, it almost seems to me more of an assumption Mm-hmm. Than, than something that is truly demonstrable, because it isn't easy to prove. Well, it, it, in the sense that it, they didn't leave, the, I guess the argument would be the enlisted men don't have the option of resigning. That would be desertion. They can't leave the army, whereas the sailors uh, could not legally desert, but as you show in your book, they're, they're able to desert uh, at every port. Yes. Well, the, the music yes, I'm and hearing... Plenty in the, of, you know, here yeah. in, in Washington Territory, Fort Stillicum, Fort Vancouver, Fort Bellingham... The desertion rate of, of soldiers, um, of enlisted soldiers, is nothing to sneeze at. I, I don't know if it's as high as 10%, mm-hmm. but I do know in the book I'm working on now about a fugitive slave in Washington Territory, the desertion of soldiers from Fort Stillicum is a major, it's a, it's a major element in the flight of this slave. So it, it's, it's definitely a reality. Well, the music playing tells us, unfortunately, we've oh. come to the end of the hour. Uh, but I want to thank you for being on and putting up with the, the technological glitch. But we, uh, 
we did all right, I think. And so thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Warship Under Sail, the USS Decatur in the Pacific West, uh, for a look at something different uh, from our usual fair and Civil War talk radio. It's a, a very interesting book. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.